Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday Divine Worship. These readings also drive the worship and daily meditations, the video uh, devotions that we do here at Good Shepherd each day throughout the upcoming week. And many times we get a chance to uh, examine and preach on these lessons twice. If there's no minor festival that we're moving on a Wednesday, we take care of it on Sunday and Wednesday. So this is uh, really your guide for your individual, your family, and your congregational focus for the upcoming week. Pastor Moline and Vicar Golden and I look at the readings in the one-year series, Proclaiming the One, and we have an eye toward the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us, for the life of the world, proclaiming the one and only Savior from sin. Today we're going to look at the readings for the sixth Sunday after Trinity, Trinity 6 in your liturgical calendar, and you will note that there is a kind of an extra emphasis or theme, not only on the Word of God, which is always what our focus is, but on one specific aspect of the Word of God, and that is God's holy law. We pray that God would bless us as we examine these words. Vicar, Matthew 5, 17 to 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
Okay, there we have Jesus' words, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17 to 26. The uh, first part of our pericope, Pastor, Jesus is teaching about the law, the purpose of the law, the function of the law, the relationship of the law to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. And we have a lot of confusion with regard to the law in, uh, in our church today. We have those who would say that Christ has fulfilled the law, so uh, anything goes. We can do whatever we want. We are set free, and the law has no place in the life of a Christian. There are others that think that perhaps Jesus hasn't done enough, and so uh, the Christian needs to fulfill some aspect of the law of God in order to know with certainty that he or she is saved. So, Pastor, can you help sort out these um, different teachings, and I would say these distortions of what Jesus is actually teaching here? Yeah, uh, and what Jesus is actually teaching here is is much bigger than even just the, the word law itself. Notice he uses the words law or the prophets, law and the prophets. Yeah, so he's talking about the word of God. He's talking about the word of God Old Testament-wise. So this would be Moses' books, and this would be also then you know Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those things. The Old Testament books is what the general term law and prophets is referring to. And he's saying, uh, I didn't come to get rid of those or to eliminate them, but rather I have come to fulfill them, and that's really a great thing uh, when we understand it correctly, because while we like to think about the uh, books of Moses as law, there are both law and gospel in there. We have, yes, the Ten Commandments, but we also have the promise of a Savior given to Adam, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Uh, we have uh, that same promise passed down to Judah. Uh, the promise is given to Noah. We have all these people where the promise of a Savior is given, and Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of that promise. And so we can't just turn this into, especially as we look at the rest of this pericope, uh, this is what I need to do to make sure that I'm saved, because then we're taking away from the office and person and work of Jesus and putting the emphasis on our salvation um, on us instead of uh, rightly where it belongs with Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises of old. So uh, we, we know that law and prophets, uh, the, uh, uh, there are certain little code words that are used in uh, the New Testament that refer to the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures as a whole. So uh, we are not only looking at the Ten Commandments, but our Old Testament reading for today, Trinity 6, is the Ten Commandments. And so um, understanding how God giving the law is being uh, not abolished but fulfilled, normally when you think of something being fulfilled, um, the promises fulfill or promises given, the promises fulfilled, you don't need the promise anymore because that promise has been fulfilled. Um, Jesus is saying, uh, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures, which include uh, the giving of the moral law, but I've come to fulfill it, and yet as I fulfill it, not one iota, not one word, not one speck of that law is to pass away. And so this this is very, very um 
I don't want to say confusing, but it is very, very easy for the Christian to fall into a ditch on one side, too much emphasis on the law, or to fall in the ditch on the other side uh, of libertine living. I don't need the law. I, I can do what I please because Jesus loves me and will save me, So, um, which gets rid of Christ, which gets, gets rid of repentance, which gets rid of reconciliation, which is the second half of our, uh, of our text here. And so how, how do we fit all of these pieces together, Pastor? Yeah, I mean, the only way we can fit all this together is in the person work of Jesus, who um, uses his word, both law and gospel, to call, gather, enlighten, and sanctify the entire church on earth. And so um, we gladly hear the law that says that we are sinful people, knowing also, as we hear the gospel, that Jesus has bled and died to forgive all of our sins and fulfilled the law perfectly in our place. And so we can't fall into, um, we can't swerve from that particular truth that all of God's law is good and wise and useful for teaching. Uh, we can't uh, become libertines, uh, antinomianisms, uh, antinom nomians, there's the word, uh, or legalists, we have to stay firmly where the word teaches that there is a law and it is good and wise, but there's also forgiveness from Christ, which is also good and useful for us. And so really in this first half of the text, uh, Jesus is teaching us that the Old Testament scriptures point forward to the promise of a Messiah that Messiah has been fulfilled. The Messiah is God in the flesh, Jesus himself. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament scriptures go away or that they lose their validity, but everything has been fulfilled in the incarnation, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is that, uh, with, without getting into the, the three uses of the law and all that kind of stuff, that's really the first half of our text, up until verse uh, 21. Uh, is, that, is that fair, Pastor? Yeah. Okay. Um, and in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is teaching that we are saved by grace through faith on account of the person and work of Jesus, by his righteousness, and not by any works righteousness of ourselves fair? He's, he's teaching that we're not saved by being holy or doing uh, what God wants, because not because if we were perfect, we wouldn't save ourselves, but because it's impossible, because we begin imperfect, and no matter how much uh, effort we put into it, we'll never actually accomplish perfection uh, as a result of our own works. And so that leaves us then with, like you said, the only place we can look for our salvation is to Christ who bleeds and dies, uh, who lives the perfect life in our place, and who atones for our sins by his work on the cross. So God's Word is teaching us here that righteousness is necessary for salvation. But it's not a righteousness that we can produce in ourselves. The righteousness is a gift and that it comes from outside of us. Is that, 
is is that a fair way to look at these two attempts at righteousness? Well, I, th- I think that definitely follows uh, from the things. I think Jesus' main focus is to really kill the sinful nature within us that wants to look to our own works as the place our righteousness is found. Uh, and we, we have other places in Scripture then where it teaches Christ is the one who imputes that righteousness upon us in the waters of holy baptism, for example. Okay, so... The law is good, the law is wise, the law is powerful, but the law cannot save. Correct. That is, uh, that is Jesus' teaching here. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. Or as I would say, you're barking up the wrong tree. And so Jesus here in this first half is setting the stage for the second half, beginning in verse 21 where he's almost using as an object lesson the fifth commandment, and uh, as Lutherans, the fifth commandment is you shall not murder. Many times people will say, finally, here's a commandment I haven't broken. I have not, I mean, there, there is no criminal minds episode based on my life. I have not secretly murdered somebody and stashed the body. I'm clear. I'm clear on this commandment. However, Jesus, because he does not want us to cling to that that self-righteousness, he cuts right to the very core. And he teaches us that even with this commandment, which seems to let us off the hook, this commandment condemns me a lost and condemned creature. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the rest of Matthew 5, 17 to 26, picking up at verse 21. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're looking at the readings for the sixth Sunday after Trinity, and specifically, we are looking at the gospel reading, Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17 to 19, and 20 to 26. We looked at that first section quite a bit uh, in our last segment, Jesus uh, coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. And now beginning in verse 21, it's almost like Jesus is uh, giving an object lesson or uh, teaching, expanding that teaching by getting very, very specific with one of the commandments. And as Lutherans number the commandments, this would be the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Vicar, do you want to refresh our memories, Matthew 5, 21 to 26? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. 
And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, we have some uh, uh, interesting, and I would say vital words, from Jesus' lips in the Sermon on the Mount. He is uh, he's teaching about self-righteousness. He's teaching about anybody who thinks that they can fulfill even one of the Ten Commandments. But most importantly, he's talking about a subject that is near and dear and vitally important for every human being. Uh, it's very common today to talk about relationships. You know, do you have a relationship with Jesus? How's your relationship with your wife? Vicar, how's your relationship with your supervising pastor? Uh, you know, all of these, I mean, this relationship talk, almost to the point of absurdity. But when we get down to it, how we live in the various vocations, the various relationships we have is vital. Sinners sin. And the only way sinful people can exist is for reconciliation to take place. There's a lot of fake, false lip service paid to reconciliation. But there can be no true reconciliation apart from dying to sin and rising with Christ. And I think all of that is contained in this text. Pastor, where do you want to pick up on this second half? Well, I don't, I don't know if we should even uh, go to Genesis chapter 4 and learn about Cain and Abel, where this, uh, I think that's what Jesus is alluding to here, is it, sinners dealing with each other almost from the very beginning are killing each other and hurting each other and in conflict uh, about going to the altar and uh, uh, bringing their sacrifices to God. So, I mean, just to bring that forward, maybe the real place we should start then is talking about um, the details of the law and how no one is without blame uh, and no one has kept any of the Ten Commandments perfectly, and all of us are guilty sinners. How how does Jesus expand on this fifth commandment? Before we went into break, I said, now here's a commandment that many Christians say, well, finally, a commandment that I haven't broken. How does Jesus teach the fifth commandment here? Um, and Luther piggybacks on this in Luther's small catechism with his explanation of the fifth commandment. How does Jesus teach the fifth commandment so that no None of us uh, are left off the hook. Well, uh, he says that's not just the physical action of murdering someone or ending a life, but it's also the thought um, that's behind it. So when you're angry at someone and you uh, are, want them to be dead, even if you don't carry it through, it's the word about it. If you uh, say, you know, you're an idiot or a moron, or uh, I think in... Um, 
our English Raka. translation, right? We have you fool or raka. Uh, if you have a word that's directed at someone that could hurt them in that way, it's as good as murder. And so he expands it not to be just the physical act, but also the thought and the word that goes with it. Anything that hurts or harms our neighbor in his body rather than helping and supporting him in every physical need. So we sin in thought, word, and deed. We're not talking about... Um you know, the, the thought police that uh, try to pretend they know what's going on in our heart and mind. God knows. God knows the motivation. He knows what's in our heart. He knows what's in our mind. And we stand guilty, even if we haven't uh, physically murdered anyone, and I would say that's the vast majority of us, but we have broken the fifth, uh, the fifth commandment. Whenever we have said words in anger or hatred, whenever we bear a grudge, whenever we wish someone was dead, even though we haven't uh, pulled the trigger or uh, wielded the machete, we are guilty. God's word will not allow us any shred of self-righteousness. So Jesus is exposing us here, and then he goes on and doesn't seem to fit, Pastor. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. What does this fifth commandment uh, sinning against our neighbor in thought, word, and deed have to do with reconciliation with our brother. Well, I think that's where we go back then to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, and we see um, that uh, God appreciated Abel's offering but rejected Cain's offering, and that's because of the faith behind there. And uh, as a result of this, there's jealousy between the two brothers that comes about. And uh, that jealousy, that thought of jealousy, that thought of anger grows uh, and becomes the action of murder where Cain kills his brother out of that jealousy. And that's the same way it works in all of us. When we have the thought uh, I wish that person were dead. It grows, it builds, sin uh, increases within us as it uh, uh, hopefully never brings forth the fruit of murder, but it, it heads that direction because of our sinful nature. And so Jesus is alluding to this Genesis chapter 4 account, uh, which everybody would have thought of when he said these words. And they're like, oh yeah, I see that murder uh, that took place between Cain and Abel, all about these silly little things. Um they're bringing that to mind when they hear these words. Was Cain guilty of breaking the fifth commandment even before he actually jumped up out of the weeds and killed his brother? He was, and I, I love the way that Jesus talks about it here also because um, you'll notice it says, if you're bringing your offering and you know your brother has something against you, go and deal with him about it before you bring your offering. He's also then implying what? Abel is part of what is um, to, to do with this whole thing. He didn't reconcile with Cain uh, and allowed this uh, conflict to remain between the two of them. Vicar, you are an uh, adult believer. You, uh, you were not steeped in religion every minute of your day, all of your life. Why is reconciliation so hard? Reconciliation is hard because we want to get even. We want to get back. We, we're vengeful. We have sinful, diseased hearts. And we want to justify ourselves by putting the other person down. 
Pastor, is this only a uh, outside the body of Christ issue? Um, I think we I think we see this, or maybe are tempted to think that it is only in the pagan, uh, pardon. Walmart world, where we see all this kind of uh, pushing and shoving and trying to get ahead and backbiting and all this kind of stuff. Can this even happen in the Christian church, in Christian families, in Christian society? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, not just uh, non-believers, but even Christians themselves. And this, sadly, has been behind many of the conflicts within the church, uh, where people leave the church, where people stop giving to the church, where pastors are removed. Uh, I mean, this conflict of murder is behind much of it. And reputations are murdered. Um, family relationships are destroyed, uh, livelihoods uh, because of things that are said or done, and uh, paychecks that are cut in half and all this kind of stuff. All these things, just like Cain and Abel, that, that anger, that hatred, that jealousy, whatever it is, it grows and it builds and it grows and it builds and it grows and it builds until finally it erupts. And it can erupt in a, in a variety of different ways. So, Pastor, how do we keep that kind of gross sin from erupting in our hearts, in our lives, in our congregations? Yeah, uh, well, that's the issue, right, is when we keep it inside, it grows and it gets worse and the anger increases. I was just watching with my wife last night before bed an old episode of Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, go back and watch that show. It's worth it. Uh, but the, uh, the show episode was about um, Hal going to a conference with work and he runs into this guy he accuses of uh, stealing his idea and every five minutes they're at each other's throats hitting each other and punching each other. That's what sinful nature does when it is kept inside and, and kept quiet. And so kind of like popping a zit, we need to get it out. We need to uh, suck it out of our body. And the way that happens is by uh, confession, uh, absolution, receiving the word, receiving the sacraments. Those are the healing um, medicines for the sin that is within us. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The message of the prophets. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The message of John the Baptist. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The message of Jesus himself. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The message of any and every faithful preacher today. And isn't it interesting as we look at our society right now, too, where we have tried to remove sin and say no one is guilty, everything is permissible. Now all this rage has been building up within people, and it is uh, bursting forth at the seams in riots, in uh, uh, burning down buildings, in tearing down statues, in inability to have a conversation with people on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, when we don't have any sin and we don't allow for confessing that sin and being forgiven of it, all of a sudden uh, the world falls apart. And the answer always has been and always will be the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. The reason why we need it is because all mankind fell in Adam's fall.
We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the Old Testament reading for the sixth Sunday after Trinity, Exodus 20, 1 to 17. Does that sound familiar? It should. God's holy law. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We are taking a look at the readings for the sixth Sunday after Trinity. In our first two segments, we examined the gospel reading for Trinity 6, Matthew 5, 17 to 26. Jesus has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. In the second half of that text, he uses the example of the fifth commandment, which exposes us all. All mankind fell in Adam's fall. One common sin infects us all. From sire to son, the bane descends. And over all, the curse impends. That's the uh, words from TLH. All mankind fell in Adam's fall. We've cleaned it up quite a bit in LSB, but we're going to take a look here uh, now in our Old Testament reading, Exodus 20. There's two places in uh, Scripture where the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, is recorded for us, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And so, Vicar, without further ado, take it away. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, there you have it, the Ten Commandments. And uh, just to show you how uh, simple we are as Christians, we have these words here in uh, Exodus 21 to 17. We are told by God that there are ten words or Ten Commandments, and it has been an ongoing debate in the history of the church ever since on how to number the commandments. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down on this, but it can be a major, major stumbling block for some people. The uh, Lutherans and Roman Catholics number their commandments one way. The Reformed, Evangelical, most of Protestant numbers their uh, Protestantism numbers their commandments a different way, and the Jewish faith numbers their commandments uh, yet a third way. And so uh, this can be very, very confusing. That's why I mentioned in our earlier segments when we talked about the fifth commandment, I said you shall not murder because not everybody would say that the fifth commandment says that. They've got them numbered differently. Pastor, um, these Ten words, this section, Exodus 21 to 17, begins with, uh, we have the intro in verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How is that verse, um, in one respect, the key to understanding everything that follows, and how is that one verse uh, understood with regard to the numbering of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, um, it's it's understood as this is the truth of God. This is the foundation for all the rest of the things that come after it. And so you don't murder because God is the Lord and you're not. You don't steal because God is the Lord and you're not. And so it's kind of the foundational premise that when that is true, all the rest of these things also are true. As far as the numbering, uh, there are some who take this to be the first commandment and then combine uh, the ninth and the tenth commandments later. Um, There are some who uh, uh, don't take it as the first commandment and uh, divide them up differently later on. But uh, no matter how you number the Ten Commandments and what you put as commandment number one, this statement that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of uh, slavery in Egypt, that is the foundational statement that makes all the rest of the Ten Commandments true. Is that a gospel statement? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Is that law or gospel? It is gospel. It is gospel. Talking about the deliverance of God. Now, if we if we uh, focus on that verse 2 there of Exodus 20 and God's deliverance, God's mighty hand, um, are we able to see then what follows as kind of a a godly Christian response, what Lutherans would call a third use of the law, because we are Christians, this is how we should live our life? Is this how we look at that, or is that looking at that too narrowly? 
Well, you do look at the Ten Commandments in terms of the third use of the law, but you can't let that be the only reality. Um, it is also able to operate in the other two uses of the law as well. Um, and so we take all of the law together, and, and honestly, the truth is, we preach the law as true and as the word of the Lord God who brought uh, the children of Israel out of slavery. And it works on us all by the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the appropriate way. And so, you know, as preachers, that's the way we kind of handle it. We just preach the law, and the law will do its work because God promises that to be true. Um, I think it's worth pointing out here, too, the words, I am the Lord your God. Those are words that uh, are often quoted by Jesus himself in speaking about himself. And so Christ says this a lot as well. Um, uh, ego ego, a, ego a me. A me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I am these things. That is drawing to our attention the fulfillment of these words in the person work of Jesus, which is part of what we talked about with the gospel lesson. Okay, excellent to bring that out. Pastor, um, as, as Vicar was reading these words, I can see where people get confused with regard to the numbering of the commandments. And it's not like Lutherans have skipped any parts of it, like some evil, wicked plot or conspiracy theory. But we have um, put some of these in what we call the close or the summary of the commandments. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Rarely are those words focused on, rarely are those words preached on. What is God teaching us in this section of Scripture, Exodus 20? And I just read... Um, uh, verses 5 through 5 and 6 5 and 6 what are mostly included in what Lutherans call in the small catechism the close of the commandments what's the purpose of this section of scripture well, uh, again, it is teaching us law and gospel, the law being um, God punishes sin, and God actually thinks sin is a real thing. Uh, if your pastor doesn't say that, then you need to find a new church. Uh, talk to your pastor first about it. But sin is real. There is punishment for it, and uh, it is bad, and uh, we should not celebrate it or rejoice in it. And at the same time, uh, not only is the law true, but also the gospel that God forgives in the personal work of Jesus, that also is true. And we need to make sure we uphold both of those things as true all the time uh, as we deal with God's word. And so not just with the Ten Commandments, you know, as we go through the Ten Commandments, they both have law part and they also have a promise way because of the way they're written. They're written in the future tense. So it's not just um, you you shall not murder, as we say it often in English, but it's also you will not murder uh, in the same sense. And so it can have that gospel promise. This is who you are in God's blessing and in the forgiveness of sins he gives through Jesus Christ. So we have all those things happening uh, with these very few verses uh, in the Hebrew. Vicar, how would, if somebody asked you, you know, briefly, concisely, how would you summarize the three uses of the law that are talked about in uh, Lutheran Christian instruction. The first use of the law is the guide for all believers and unbelievers. It's a moral guide. The second use of the law is the mirror for believers where 
Christians look into the mirror of the word of God and know that they are sinful. The third use of the law is basically the life's little handbook of how to live. Now that you know the gospel, having been saved, dear Christian, having been redeemed, dear Christian, uh, this is this is what is God pleasing. Okay, and these uses of the law are up to God the Holy Spirit. It's not like some uh, pastor can say, okay, now I'm going to speak specifically this use. We preach the law, and we let the Holy Spirit do the work and apply the different uses of the law. Pastor, there is one word that is a sticky word in this section, and that is jealous. How is God a jealous God? Is there something in me that he uh, he thinks uh, he is lacking and that he has to be jealous in that way? How is God a jealous God, and why is that an important aspect of everything we've been talking about? Yeah, it's not jealous in the sense like one kid's jealous that the other kid got uh, the flavor of candy bar that they wanted at Halloween or something like that. It's it's jealous in the sense of there's the meme where the uh, the man and the woman are walking and the man's got his uh, head over his shoulder looking at the girl and uh, the girlfriend is mad about that and angry at him. Uh, that's the kind of jealousy. There, there's, a, there's a lot of cute things with that meme. There right? are. Uh, and it's one that I think everybody knows. God, in that sense, is kind of like the the girlfriend in that meme. He doesn't want us looking at other gods or at other people or at other items and making them into idols. He wants us to have eyes only for him as he has eyes only for us. So he is jealous for us and for our salvation. He doesn't want us to wander away after other gods, which ultimately always lead us to hell. Is that correct? Okay. And so here we have this this reading of the Ten Commandments that Jesus has fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. Here we have God's good news for you and for me. His love is not going to run out. It is there for all generations. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at Romans 6. And we're going to see how God applies this good news of Jesus to all of us. This is Proclaiming the One. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'd love to have you worship with us. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030. That's right. You heard that right. We are open for business, 8 and 1030 on Sunday morning. Um, 
By the time you hear this program, adult Bible study will have resumed. Uh, No Sunday school yet, but we're having family Bible study in the fellowship hall. So come and hear and feast on God's Word between the services. Wednesday evening at 630, uh, we gather as well. So many, many opportunities to hear the Word of God. It is always a gift. It is always a blessing. And quite frankly, folks, it's a miracle when anybody shows up. Um, you're not forced to. We don't live in a land where you are required by law to fulfill some requirements and go to church. It's completely voluntary. It's a miracle when the people of God want to come and hear the Word of God. So uh, we are very, very thankful for that. Come and hear God's Word. Interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Feast on His body and blood. Um, Remember your baptism, and we're going to talk about that in our epistle reading here as well. And you can also always check us out on the radio or on the internet, thecross957.org. Uh, Vicar, our epistle reading is Romans from Romans 6. The uh, reading is 3 to 11. We also have the option of verses 1 and 2. We always like to read those optional verses if at all possible. So how about Romans 6, 1 to 11? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Pastor, I'm not sure that there are any more beautiful words written in all of Paul's epistles than uh, these 11 verses from Romans 6. And that's not a negative on anything else that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. These words are just so powerful and so profound. Romans 6 here is certainly a reference to baptism. We have that. We know that for sure from Uh, verse 3, where baptism is uh, specifically mentioned. And those verses that Vicar read, I think, uh, are very, very important to the context, this practical application of how this epistle fits into Jesus talking about coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, the Old Testament reading of the Ten Commandments. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Isn't this a temptation 
that faces every Christian that the more we sin, the more we're forgiven, and so God is glorified, and so I should go out, go out and live it up because, once again, I'm justifying my sin and giving somehow some kind of lip service to God. Um, isn't that a temptation that's before every Christian? It is, and even um, what goes along with it to say, well, I'm forgiven, so now I can do what I want to do um, because I already get to have heaven. And where the denial is in this action is is that uh, it's denying that sin hurts faith. And I think the Lutheran confessions do a really good job on talking about this idea that when we are in open, unrepentant sin, that sin is killing our faith. It is uh, destroying our faith so that it's not there anymore, which puts our souls at risk of uh, eternal damnation. And we have to always be aware of that and realize that when we're dealing with sin. That's why when uh, we are happy to speak the forgiveness of sins to somebody struggling with sin, we also encourage them to stop doing it in the future. We just don't say, okay, now you're forgiven, you can do whatever you want to. It's an um, encouragement to live a Christian life. And I think sometimes that encouragement to live a Christian life uh, is not emphasized as much as it could be or should be, especially in Lutheran churches. Because we have such a, a great and awesome focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus that we don't want to somehow be accused of teaching or encouraging works righteousness. And so it is a constant struggle to show that living a Christian life is a natural fruit of actually believing the gospel. And I think that's what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does such a beautiful job of here in Romans 6, and does so by connecting this question and this life of a Christian to God's gift of holy baptism. What am I talking about there, Pastor? Well, um, in baptism, we are connected to Christ. He... he we we stick to him almost as if everything he goes through, we go through with him. And so our sinful natures, when Christ dies on the cross, they are killed uh, with him. Uh, when Christ is raised from the dead, we're promised that we will raise from the dead. When Christ ascends into heaven, uh, as he himself says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. When he ascends into heaven, the promise is that we also will be with God forever in that kingdom. And so uh, baptism is the thing that connects us to Jesus. It's the Velcro that sticks us to him so that all the promises that God makes through the personal work of Jesus, uh, we get to have fulfilled for us. Uh, well said, well said. In uh, verse 6, Vicar, we know that our old self was crucified. Uh, I beg to differ. I have never been crucified. I have never had nails driven through my hands and feet and hung on an old rugged cross. Um, is, uh, is, is Paul exaggerating here? Is this hyperbole? Uh, is he just out and out lying? What's going on here? No, this is the old Adam. This is the sin that, the original sin that we've inherited and um we pray that in baptism, and it is done for real, that he is drowned and died and crucified. Old Adam is gone. 
in order that sin is the body of sin be brought to nothing. The uh, that image of uh, the, the Velcro and being stuck to Jesus, and so that everything Jesus does or undergoes, I have done and undergoes, connects very well to that. I uh, I was thinking about uh, Elvis Presley. You know, I'm in love. I'm stuck on you, you know, that, that kind of a thing. And it really fits in this particular context. There are a couple of other uh, great one-line, one-liners here that I want, to, uh, uh, I want to fit on. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. What's the significance, Pastor, of the fact that Jesus, risen from the dead, will never die again? Well, uh, if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus is not the only person who's been resurrected from the dead. We have in the Old Testament um, the um, the widow's child that was raised uh, by the uh, the prophet Elijah. Uh, we also have, um, you know, for example, Lazarus, the widow at Nain's son, um, and. Uh, I can't think of the other ones. We have people even in the time of the book of Acts uh, who are raised from the dead. The difference being all those people would die again. So St. Lazarus has a tomb in um, uh, Bethany across the mountain from Jerusalem. You can walk down to that tomb. Uh, And he has a second tomb on the island of Cyprus where when he died the second time, uh, his body was laid to rest again. And it's not that kind of a resurrection that we're going to have. It's not a temporary thing where we just pick up where we left off. Instead, it's something that goes on forever and ever, world without end. That's our next resurrection. And the only way that can be true is if that is also true for Christ, because as we said before, everything he does, uh, we are stuck to him and we do with him. That uh, next line there, it says that for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. I asked Vicar before if this was hyperbole, if this was an exaggeration, if this is an out and out lie. Did Jesus really die one time for all? And maybe the question really should be if he did, for all what? Yeah, he did die once and for all people across all the world and all time uh, and for their sin that it might be forgiven. And that's a a reality of truth uh, for every single person that lives in this world. Christ has died to forgive their sins. Now, not everybody realizes it. Not everybody believes that. And that is continuing and remaining in sin uh, when you disbelieve that word of God that declares that to be true. And that's an issue, and that's what leads to damnation. But the truth is, is that every single sin for every single person in the entire world has been forgiven. And when, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we believe that by hearing the word and receiving the sacraments, that's the thing that gives us salvation. So God gives us that salvation through the Holy Spirit that trusts that earned forgiveness from Jesus Christ. And so now, based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, delivered to us in the waters of holy baptism, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, from death to life. That's God's MO. That's God's MO for Jesus. That's God's MO for you and for me and for all believers everywhere. Vicar, would you bring this section to a close by praying the collect for the sixth Sunday after Trinity? Let us pray. Lord of all power and might, 
author and giver of all good things. Graft into our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness. And of your great mercy, keep us in the same. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Merlene and Vicar Golden, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. This coming Sunday, when you get out of bed, drink your coffee, read your paper, pray for your pastors, but most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ. We'll see you again next week.